Good morning, Community Covenant Church. If you're a guest with us today, first time visiting us online, my name is Greg, one of the pastors. And last week we jumped back into the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We started a series on the Beatitudes. The first part of the Sermon on the Mount last fall went through those Beatitudes one at a time. And if you want to go back, I think it'd be great to go back and read those, listen to them, watch them. We also add our notes to that, so you can download the notes if you'd like to. So um, that's where we're at today. We're going to be talking about what about knowing right from wrong. And each week we're going to have a what about, fill in the blank. So this week, what about knowing right from wrong, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. I want to give you some, show you some books that I use in studying the Sermon on the Mount. This is my favorite one, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, had this book for years. Love it. Love it. It's great. I just got this one the other day, maybe even yesterday. It's called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing by Jonathan Pennington. Great book, looks like. I heard about him and listened to him talk. He's passionate about the Sermon on the Mount. And then another one, if you just want to follow along, John Stott has a little workbook called Sermon on the Mount. It's 12 studies for individuals and groups in the Sermon on the Mount. Great stuff. If you want to follow along, great authors. Uh, and before we jump into that, I just want to mention that Linda, my wife, is on uh, the PowerPoint today. And so why don't you say hi to the folks, Linda? Hello. Oh, there she is. Okay, let's, let's uh, jump in here. Uh, Matthew 5, verses... 17 through 20. Uh, I like to remind people that Jesus was the most radical person who ever lived. And he came out of heaven and into our brokenness to start a revolution. And the Sermon on the Mount is often referred to by scholars and theologians as his manifesto. It would be like our Declaration of Independence would be the manifesto for the United States. It would be like Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech would be a manifesto about a longing. And so the Sermon on the Mount, it's only about 109 verses long. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes to read. So it's, it's widely thought that, that Matthew was giving us the Cliff Notes version. It was probably... A longer sermon than that and there's even a shorter version in Luke chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount and if I were to provide for you a simplified overview of the Sermon on the Mount like the big idea it would probably be that the this inaugural sermon of Jesus he dives into our innermost being probing the heart and raising the question of motive that's an overview of what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. And today we'll look at what scholars describe uh, as the thesis statement for the Sermon on the Mount. You can probably remember studying about or practicing thesis statements in high school or college. I didn't really get the hang of it, the, the idea of it till grad school, but the idea of, of a um, a thesis statement by way of review is it's usually this one sentence overview of the main idea of the essay, the manifesto, or the book. It most often occurs in probably the last paragraph of the introduction or the preface, depends on who writes that. But sometimes I found that it can occur 
Uh, you can find the thesis statement somewhere in the first paragraph or the second paragraph of the first chapter. So it's not always right at the top. And this is something that's <clears throat> excuse me, happening here. A good thesis statement will describe the intention of the author probably in just one sentence, and then it will prepare the reader to see and understand the main ideas of where the author is taking this, and this, this is how it's, it's prevented. So with all that said, I'd like to read uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, and then pray. And see if you can identify the thesis statement. It's one of those four verses. Now, we've been talking about standing uh, while we read the Word of God in honor and respect for the Word of God. If I stand here, you won't be able to see my head, but I want to invite you to stand uh, in your house with your, <coughs> excuse me, with your family as I read Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. And again, we're looking for the thesis statement. Okay, here we go. 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. This is Jesus speaking. Law and the prophets are what we know today as the Old Testament in a big picture. Jesus goes on to say, I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, King James Version uses the the phrase jot and tittle, which refers to just a, a stroke of a Hebrew um, alphabet character. And so there's just the smallest of the small. So it says, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes, the, we get the word scribe, this, uh, the English word for our, our word grammar comes from the Greek word for scribe. So they were all into grammar and writing and thinking. So unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can think of the Pharisees as the religious police. I'll say it once more time. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Kind Father, I do pray that you would be the primary teacher here. Lord, open the eyes of our heart to see what you're up to, to see what you're doing. Lord, I, I also want to pray for those who are just struggling, the anxiety or the, the financial burden or sickness, uh, whatever it is, that you would be with your people today and that you would draw people unto yourself. So we commit this time, pray in Jesus' name, amen. So those four verses are packed with meaning and implications, but scholars agree that verse 20 is the thesis statement for the whole Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. And I just want you to imagine the people sitting around Jesus as he's going through this sermon. When he says that, it, it would be like a gut punch to the soul. They're, they're, like, they're thinking like, well, 
the scribes and the Pharisees, they're pretty devout, they're pretty religious, they got this law thing down. How in the world could I ever surpass that? So some people were probably just thinking of getting up and walking away, I'm done with this. Or other people were maybe saying, hey, I got, I got to listen to what, what's going on here. Something's up and I want to listen to this. So I hope that we can. The legalistic scribes and Pharisees had shaped the Jewish legal system to focus more on external obedience. And Jesus shows up with a, a deeper version of reality that was always pretty clear throughout the Old Testament. But the scribes and the Pharisees of this time period missed it. They just missed it. The Old Testament verse that a lot of us are familiar with that that gives us insight into how God pays attention to beyond, below the surface things, below the external things. 1 Samuel 16, 7, Samuel's looking for the next king of Israel, comes across David, and he says in, in part of his dialogue there, for God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now this, of course, is not just the, it's not the only verse in the Old Testament that, that indicates to us that God looks past the outward circumstances, uh, exterior of a person, but looks at the heart. And this is what Jesus came to rectify. And today, we only have time to consider two questions. I saw like four questions that this text could, could speak to or address, but we only have time today for two questions in this passage. And I'll give them to you up front and then we'll go back and look at them one at a time. That's often the way that I do things. So let's take a look at the first question. What does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law? Good question. The second one, question that we'll look at is what does it mean for our righteousness to progress beyond the scribes and the Pharisees? So we'll go back to question one and we'll work our way through that to question two and then we'll wrap it up. So what does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law. The purpose of the Old Testament law was to point God's chosen people forward to the promised Messiah, which we know as Jesus. Uh, the, the short version uh, is, is that once Jesus came, the law's purpose was fulfilled and much of the law became obsolete. It, it's not deleted, it's fulfilled by a more penetrating law, the law of the gospel contained in God's radical and revolutionary kingdom. It's pretty common these days for cultural critics of Christianity to dismiss Christians as inconsistent uh, because from their perspective we follow some of the laws of the Old Testament and then we ignore others. You probably heard this complaint uh, before. I know that I have. I've seen late night talk show hosts try to deal with this. Uh, Bill Maher in particular uh, challenging uh, believers and in conversation. Uh, this is something you may have heard. The challenge usually sounds something like this. We'll look at it on screen. This is what um, cultural critics will say to us. Uh, when the Bible talks about certain sexual behaviors as sin, talking to us now, you guys quote that when it says not to eat self, uh, sorry, shellfish or not to get a tattoo, you just ignore it. Aren't you just picking and choosing what suits you best? Now, 
I think that's a legitimate question. And I think churchgoers or Christians that don't have an understanding of the law and certainly unbelievers, um, unchurched people uh, wouldn't know how to process this. So I want to take a, a shot at this today and see if we can figure this out. As far back as like the 16th century, I think it was John Calvin who kind of launched this idea that that the Mosaic laws could, could be distinguished in three different categories. And then those who wrote, the scholars, pastors, etc., who wrote the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was finished, I think, in 1646, they followed Calvin's lead, identifying three categories of the Mosaic Law. And we'll put them up here on the screen for you. There were civil laws, there were ceremonial laws, and there were moral laws. And so let's just walk through those, take a brief look. I got a lot of this from, from Martin Lloyd-Jones' uh, book. Uh, so let's talk about the civil laws. Uh, Lloyd-Jones refers to them as judicial laws. These laws were given for the nation of Israel in its particular circumstances at a particular time, which described how the people were to order their behavior in relationships with others, including what they were to do and what they were not to do. That's the civil or judicial law. Now the civil law, what Jesus is saying here, the civil law was fulfilled when Jesus came and he established the kingdom of God on the earth. It was, it is a new spiritual Israel that we now identify as the church. And as such, we are no longer bound by the Mosaic civil codes. They are now obsolete. Now the ceremonial law concerning the burnt offerings and the sacrifices of all the ritual and all the ritual ceremonial worship practices, these laws are no longer in effect if we accept Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. In fact, it would actually be offensive to go back to them because what that would communicate is that the sacrifice of Jesus actually wasn't sufficient. And so that brings us to the moral laws. And the moral laws consisted of the Ten Commandments and other great moral principles that have been laid down once and forever. The moral law is permanent, it's perpetual, and it still applies to us today. And while we are called to still adhere to the moral laws of God, they too were fulfilled by the coming of Jesus, and that he kept all of those laws perfectly every day for his entire life. In fact, whenever Jesus in his teaching mentioned these moral laws, he either reaffirmed them or he intensified them like we're going to see in the rest of this series. God has graciously given us the Holy Spirit to supply us with a love for his moral law and the power to live by it. That's 
what happens to us when we become followers of Jesus. We receive the Holy Spirit into our life. He supplies us with a love for the law, the wonder, the beauty of God, and he supplies the power to live by it. Now, if this is new information or new perspective for you, I hope you can begin to see how important it is to comprehend how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law. He renders the civil and ceremonial laws obsolete. It's also good to, be, to know this to respond to the cultural critics of the Christian faith that we're bound to run into at one time or another. Does this mean that we should abandon the Old Testament as unnecessary? I'm not thinking that many of you were thinking that, but I just thought we would address that. The New Testament cannot be truly understood except in the light of the Old Testament. That's a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I think uh, Paul, when he addresses Timothy, Paul is the older brother, father in the faith figure, Timothy the young man, son in the faith figure, who was just installed, commissioned as the lead pastor at the church of Ephesus. This is what Paul said to him, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This was given, of course, before they had the New Testament. So Paul is obviously speaking about the Old Testament. So while the Old Testament wasn't written to us, it was certainly written for us. I came across a quote in my notes that said something like this. I hope it doesn't sound too trite to you. But here was the quote. I didn't write this. I just found it in my notes. So eat your shrimp and get that tattoo without guilt but don't throw away your Ten Commandments just yet. So that brings us to number two. What does it mean for our righteousness to progress beyond the scribes and the Pharisees? Righteousness is that which satisfies the demands of the law. It is doing what is right. That's righteousness. To be called righteous means that, that we have right standing with God. How does that happen? What Jesus is saying in verse 20, this thesis statement for the whole sermon, is that the purpose of God's law was to show us that we needed a more righteousness, a righteousness that we couldn't come up with on our own. And that's part of the purpose of the Old Testament as well. In Galatians 3, 24 to 26, remember Galatians, Jesus is writing to some pretty legalistic, moralistic folks a little bit like the scribes and the Pharisees, but he addresses how the, the law works on our behalf. Galatians 3, 24, 26. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons through faith in Christ Jesus. This is saying a lot. It's saying that the purpose of the law was, was like a homeschool teacher in your home. Some of you have tried that for the first time. How's it going? Anyway, the, the law is, is like a tutor that leads us. It shows us 
that we can't get there from here and that, that we need this. There's something else I want you to notice in this verse as well, though. Notice the last sentence of that verse. Still up there? Yeah. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. I just want to take just a moment and say that what Paul's doing here is, is he is um, updating, upgrading uh, the, the role of women in the church. That, that women have been identified as sons. And the idea behind the sons is that they're, they get a, a share of the inheritance. In, in that time, in that way, women didn't get that. They weren't part of the inheritance. It was only the sons. But what he's saying is that we all have access, men and women, now have access, the same access as sons to the inheritance. I wanted to point that out. The purpose of the law was to show us that we couldn't do it on our own. I've heard this, I heard this years ago and I just think it's awesome. It's a little bit like a dentist's mirror. A dentist's mirror. Think about that. A dentist's mirror can point out decay in our mouth, your mouth, but it can't do anything about it. And I, I would liken a dentist's mirror to the Old Testament. It can point out decay, but it can't do anything about it. And so this perspective of righteousness becomes the thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount. The goal is to show us what true righteousness is and to show us that we can't get there from here on our own. Last fall, it was uh, Pastor Chris who taught us about the Beatitude, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And, and he said, I went back and looked at that, he said an appetite for righteousness is a desire to align our lives with who God is and all that he is doing. Seeing Jesus as our representative and example while guided by the movement and the power of the Holy Spirit. I just think that's really good. And to hear that again, you'll have to go back and, and look it up. So, we're going to conclude now, but it's going to take just a few more minutes. I wonder how far into this we are. Uh, so, how do we gain this righteousness? I want to go back to the Beatitudes and a slide that we used every week of that series. So let's put that up. So what we said, this will be a review for most of you, that there is an emptying and then there is a filling. And so what I would like to uh, say today is that this equals conversion. And then we land here, this hunger and thirst for righteousness. I hope we can see that. I can't see it. But And this is sanctification. So this is justification, how we come to faith. And then this is sanctification, how we grow in our faith. So let's just walk through it for a moment. Poor in spirit. That's the idea that we come to grips with, with the poverty of our spirit. We, we understand, we begin to see that we can't be the kind of person that we want to be or other people need us to be on our own. The way that I often think about this is, is that I can't be the kind of husband that Linda needs me to be. I can't be the kind of father that my kids, grandfather, 
that my kids need me to be, I have insufficient resources to be that guy. And so it, it causes me to be poor in spirit. It's a one-time act for our conversion, but I think we need to stay humble and stay in that place. And then the mourning would be akin to repentance. We would repent over the selfishness of our soul, the sinfulness of our soul, and the world around us. That's this word mourn. It's not just about you, but it's, it's mourning over the condition of our world system. So there's a, there's a deep repentance that occurs. And then we become meek. And as we're poor in spirit and mourn, we become meek. What's, what's it mean to be meek? Um, we often associate meekness with weakness. It's not that. Uh, a lot of you have heard enough teaching to know that. Uh, meekness is actually strength under authority. Strength under God's authority. Strength under God's yoke in our lives. And my definition of a meek person would be a humble learner. That we're poor in spirit, we, uh, we acknowledge our spiritual poverty, we mourn, we repent, that we become humble learners before God. And what happens then? Th that creates conversion in our hearts. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a hunger and thirst for God. Uh, it's, it's a hungering to know God, to please God, to honor God. And here's what I'd say to you. It's a little bit heavy. Um, if you don't have a hunger for God, you're probably not a Christian. Now, it's true that, that hunger, like the moon, waxes and wanes, and it, th th there's times where there's more and less. Th there is that that goes on in our lives. But bottom line, if you don't have a hunger for righteousness, to know God, to be like God, to honor God, to please God, you might not be a believer. So this is how we know that conversion has taken place if we have this hunger for God. And then the final four Beatitudes address uh, our sanctification. And as you probably know, hopefully you know that this is a lifelong process. So out of this conversion moment, once we've received God's mercy, we begin to give God's mercy. So mercy begins to move through us, to us, and then through us to other people. And then that mercy creates a purity, a fresh new purity in our hearts and in our lives. And then from that, it creates a peace. And Paul talks about it, a peace that passes all understanding. And then it even goes further than that, doesn't it? Not only do we have this peace that passes all understanding, but then we're able to with other people, help people reconcile or make peace with God and also with one another. That's the call of the Christian. And then finally we get to be persecuted. Isn't that awesome? We get to be persecuted. Uh, living life from a kingdom of God perspective will place us in conflict with those who oppose it. And most of the time, it's religious people that oppose it. So here's the very bottom line of these four verses, and maybe I've gone a little too long, sorry about that. Uh, the four verses that we've looked at today, here's what I'm trying to say. What Jesus 
is inviting us into with his Sermon on the Mount is that through surrendering and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, we can reorient our values, our vision, and our habits from the ways of external righteousness to a growing wholeheartedness towards God. That's where we're headed in this series. We want to come out of this, this series with a growing wholeheartedness toward God. Next week, we're going to talk about what about my anger. I'm a little afraid of that. Uh, I got some anger going on, issues at times. Uh, but that's what we'll be doing next week. Here's what, as we close, I'll have a benediction. But what I want to say to you is we've, we've, uh, uh, we've got this email address. If you want someone to pray with you, someone that will call you and talk with you and pray for you, it could be to, to know more about Jesus. It could be that you have a special need right now and you want to pray with somebody. We've created an email address. It's prayer at Community Covenant Church. No, sorry. It's prayer at Community Covenant dot church. And we're, we're going to ask men to call and pray with men. We'll ask women to call and pray with women. We also have uh, a number you can text prayer too. So if you text the word prayer to 508-338-4806, that will help us. You can fill it out a little bit and then someone will call you back. If you want to talk more about Jesus, how do I become a Christian? Or if you just need to talk to somebody and would like somebody to listen for a few minutes, we're not going to try and fix you. Uh, we're going to listen. We're going to pray for you. That's what we'll do. Men will call men. Women will call women. And don't forget, we're starting this virtual cafe today. After the, each service that we do, I'm going to show up there if you have any questions about the sermon or if you just want to greet and talk and, and that kind of thing. That'll be fine too. So as we close, uh, let me pray for us. I chose a benediction from Romans 38. Sorry. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Let's pray together. Paul says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Lord, I pray that for our church. I pray that for our viewers. I, I pray that for people who are struggling now. Uh, in this stay-at-home moment, this COVID moment, again, finances, job loss, knowing people that have passed away or been hospitalized, there's so much going on. And we want to know your love. And not only that do we want to know it, but we want to share it. Help us to be a church. Help us to be a people who looks beyond ourselves, who listens, who loves, who shares with the people around us. We thank you for this time and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.